filled full. A reading from the Gospels as told by the Jesus Storybook Bible. There were once 5,000 tired, hungry, and probably very grumpy people sitting on a hillside wanting their dinner. They'd come to hear Jesus that day. They came before breakfast, stayed all morning, all afternoon, and way past dinner. No one had meant to be out there that long, but that's how it was, listening to Jesus, as if time didn't exist. People could listen to Jesus for hours, and on this particular day, that's just what they did. But they hadn't brought enough food, and they couldn't just go and buy themselves a burger and fries to go, because, of course, they were in the middle of nowhere, with no shops or restaurants. Besides, that kind of food wasn't invented yet. What would they do? Jesus' friends had an idea. Let's send everyone home for dinner. They don't need to go, Jesus said. You can give them something to eat. Did Jesus want them to travel all the way to town and buy food for everyone? Jesus' friends panicked. But we don't have enough money. What food do you have? Jesus asked. Go and see. Now, there was a little boy in the crowd. He had brought a lunch that his mother had made for him that morning. He looked at his five loaves and two fish. It wasn't much, not nearly enough for 5,000, but it was all he had. I have some, he said. Jesus' friends laughed when they saw his little lunch. That's not nearly enough, they said. But they were wrong. Jesus knew it didn't matter how much the little boy had. God would make it enough, more than enough. Jesus said, bring me what you have. And so the little boy gave Jesus his lunch. Jesus winked at the little boy and whispered in his ear, watch. How in the world will Jesus feed everyone with just that? Jesus' friends said, because they thought it was impossible. But Jesus knew the one who made all the fish in the oceans, and Jesus knew the one who in the very beginning made everything out of nothing at all. How hard would something like this be for someone like that? Jesus took the little boy's lunch, looked up to heaven, and thanked his father. Then Jesus gave the little lunch back to his friends. As Jesus' friends started to hand out the food, do you know what? It was the strangest thing. No matter how much they broke off, there was always more, and more, and more. Enough for 5,000. Everyone ate as much as they wanted, second helpings, third helpings, even fourths, until they were full, and still there were leftovers. Well, Jesus did many miracles like this, things people thought couldn't happen that weren't natural but it was the most natural thing in all the world. It's what God had been doing from the beginning, of course. Taking the nothing and making it everything. Taking the emptiness and filling it up. Taking the darkness and making it light. The word of the Lord. As we receive the words of Jesus, which are life itself, Jesus be with you. The funeral director called the young pastor new to town 
to ask if he would perform a graveside service for a homeless man who had died while passing through town. Homeless man had no family, no friends. The funeral director said that this would be in a new cemetery. In fact, this homeless man would be the first to be laid to rest there. So hearing that, the young minister felt as if Jesus himself was asking him to do this graveside service. And so he said he would do it, got the directions, but he was unfamiliar with the area. On the day of the funeral, he started out driving and was soon very, very lost. He showed up an hour late to the cemetery, but fortunately he took heart. He saw the backhoe still there. He saw some of the workers. He walked up, apologized profusely, stepped to the graveside, noticed the lid was on the vault, but said, I won't take long. Let's honor this man. And so the, the uh, workers grabbed their lunch and sat around, and the preachers started to preach. And, you know, who, who knows how these things happened? Something came over him, and he started to preach Genesis to Revelation the whole story he preached and he closed with a stirring prayer as he walked back to his car he felt good felt like he honored this homeless man and he felt like he might have even given the workers a new sense of purpose got to his car was taking off his coat and he heard one of the workers say never seen anything like this and I've been putting in septic tanks for 20 years. <laughs> when you follow Jesus, you will be put into some unexpected situations. Some of you are in one this morning. Your friends and relatives to this day cannot understand why you would give hours of a precious weekend to do whatever it is we do here. And when you try to explain that you love Jesus, it gets even, well, I think Anne Lamont captures it. It's a, it's a dated quote, but it's classic. I did not mean to be a Christian. I would have rather died than to have my wonderful, brilliant, left-wing, non-believer friends know that I had begun to love Jesus. I think they would have been less appalled if I had developed a close personal friendship with Strom Thurmond. Pause. Those of you in the room probably under 40 need to know that Strom Thurmond was an eight-term senator, extremely conservative, from South Carolina. Long Never mind. At least there is some reason to believe that Strom Thurmond is a real person. You know, more or less. <laughs> Our text today is Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 is a series of five scenes. In each scene, Jesus is putting his followers, his disciples, into an unexpected situation to prompt deeper allegiance. What I'd like to do with you this morning, uh, as Jesus leads us, is walk through each scene. Four of them we're just going to skim. One of them we're going to take a deeper dive, because I think it shows us exactly how this works. Jesus putting us into unexpected situations in order to prompt 
deeper allegiance. Are you ready? Let's start walking. Scene one, Jesus decides to return to his hometown. It's never named in the text, but we know from other places it's it's Nazareth. Nazareth is not only not named in Mark's text, it's never named in the Old Testament. The Jewish Talmud or the historian Josephus never mentions Nazareth. Why? Because Nazareth is too below Mississippi. It is far away from everywhere. Jesus grew up in the back 40. He goes back to his hometown and he preaches in the synagogue and people are impressed, but at the same time, indignant. They're asking, who is this? This is the carpenter. This is the son of Mary. We know his brothers and his sisters. He's no different than us. Who does he think he is? And the text goes on to say even more amazingly that in his hometown, Jesus could do no miracles. Why? Because as we've been stressing The purpose of miracles is not to win the masses or impress them. The purpose of miracles is to drive allegiance deeper in those who already believe. So in Nazareth, guess what? No one believes. And miracles are always joined to faith. And in Nazareth, there was nothing to join. So no miracles in Jesus' hometown. Now, I just want to step out of the scene there. A little application. You'll remember that Paul said that when we go out and preach, we preach a message. He, he described it in two words, Christ crucified. Jesus is the only way, what he's done for our sins, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died. That's the only way to know God. Paul said, though, that when you preach Christ crucified, the world will think that message is foolishness foolishness so we have a message of foolishness we also remember that in the scene the town the text says took offense at Jesus the word offense is from the Greek word scandalos it was a scandal Jesus whole life was a scandal it had illegitimacy wrapped around it who was really the boy's daddy it had like this poverty this this ruralness to it he wasn't born in the hotel he was born behind the hotel And then he never set foot in the marbled halls of Rome, never was in Jerusalem really for any extended time except to die the death of a criminal. The movement is a scandal. So let me capture this. The message we preach is foolishness in the eyes of the world. The movement we're a part of is scandalous. So should you really be surprised when you're not invited to the party? Especially if you're vocal about this? Which is the exact reason why we should be the ones giving the parties. Scene two. Jesus decides to have his third preaching tour through Galilee, the northern part of Israel. But this one's different. Instead of him doing the preaching, he sends out the twelve to do the preaching two by two says don't take any food with you rely on people to take care of you you don't need any training just go you'll preach and you'll heal people can you imagine i love the quote uh, that janae smith who wrote our small group curriculum you'll be talking about it this week small groups she says at this point the disciples are less than stellar and yet jesus decides it's time On-the-job training is his way of discipleship. Now, I just want to step out of that and make one comment. 
it's this. Whenever we're called to do anything for Jesus, or maybe the Spirit lays something on our heart He wants to do, but we feel that we're not quite ready and prepared to do it, remember, you don't have to be stellar because He is. He's stellar, we show up. That's the kingdom of God. Scene three. Mark utilizes this technique, this literary technique he's been using, which the scholars call the sandwich technique. It's when he starts a story, interrupts it with another story, and then finishes the first story. You saw it last week when Paul preached the great message from the end of Mark 5. There's the story of Jairus and his dying daughter, but it's interrupted by the story of the woman with the issue of bleeding, and then the story of Jairus is finished. The same thing happens here. Jesus sends out the, the disciples on the preaching tour, but it's interrupted because Herod begins to hear all the great things happening during the preaching tour, and Herod thinks that John the Baptist has been resurrected, so Mark thinks it's time to insert here in the middle of this story how John the Baptist died. We, can't, we don't have time to go into that story. You should read it on your own. The bottom line is that John the Baptist died as a cocktail wager, one of the commentators said, to appease a drunk tyrant. Jesus said of John the Baptist he was the greatest man ever born of a woman. And he dies as a cocktail wager. The point, by the way, the, the point's always in the middle of the sandwich. The point, when you follow Jesus, you might die. I just want to say one thing about that. Actually, not me this time. Seren Kierkegaard. When a tyrant dies... His rule ends. When a martyr dies, his rule begins. Scene four. Feeding of the 5,000. That's the one we're going to take a deeper dive into. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. It's important, I think. Scene five. Jesus walking on water. John tells us that after the feeding of the 5,000, the people with their stomachs full were so impressed that they wanted to forcibly make Jesus king. As you can imagine, that was now a dangerous crowd. So the disciples get in boats and they start rowing across the Sea of Galilee to the other side, the northeast side up near a village near Bethsaida. Jesus doesn't go with them. We don't know why. And as we'll soon find out, he doesn't really need a boat. So, but they're rowing. Rowing, rowing, the wind. We've talked about the Sea of Galilee being a wind tunnel. It's down in a, in a ravine. It sits 700 feet below sea level, bounded on high sides. And the disciples weren't scared of the wind. I mean, they grew up on the water. They just rowed and rowed. The text says it got to be the fourth watch of the night. So it's somewhere between three and six in the morning. When the disciples, what does terrify them is they see what looks to be something walking on the water towards them. They initially think it's a ghost. Now here's the brilliance of Mark writing this story. He does two things that give us clues why we think Jesus did this. First is, you'll notice in the text, when if you would read it, it says that Jesus was about to, quote, pass by 
them. Now, we've seen that phrase before, pass by, God passing by. It was in Exodus 33 and 34. After Moses had seen God part the Red Sea, and you remember, we've said this in the weeks past too, that in every ancient culture, what they all believed to be true, that whoever was stronger than water must be God. So Jesus walking on the water, but it's, he's about to pass by. Moses, after seeing God part the Red Sea, a few weeks, times later, he says, God, I want to see your whole glory now. Your whole glory. You remember what God says? Moses, if you were to see my whole glory, you would die like a moth to the flame. Because in your sinful condition, you can't see me and live. I am burning in purity. I am absolute life itself. You cannot stay alive in my presence without my help. So what I am going to do for you, Moses, in a symbol that points to that cross, he says, I'm going to tuck you in the rock, and I, with my hand, I'm going to cover you. Cover. The blood of Jesus covers you. And then my back will pass by the point of jesus walking on the water and passing them by is to say that jesus is taking the place of god he is that lord but then jesus the disciples are scared and jesus hollers out take courage it is i now in the greek the usual word order is verb and then subject but it's reversed here and so literally the text reads take courage I am. Have you heard that before? It's actually the given name of God to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 when Moses said, God, who should I tell Israel is sending me to them to deliver them from Israel? And God says, you tell them, I am sending you. So we see Jesus walking on the water. He's taking the place of God and he's taking the name of God. You see, he's putting in the disciples in an unexpected situation in order to promote deeper allegiance by revealing who he actually is. Now, I just want to step out of that and say one thing about that. What's missing in that story? Now, when Matthew tells the story of Jesus walking on the water, he says there's another piece to this story. One of the disciples actually gets out of the boat and walks on the water to Jesus. Do you remember who that was? Peter. So Peter actually walks, and as long as he keeps his eyes on Jesus and not his surroundings, he walks toward Jesus. When he takes his eyes off Jesus and is moved by his surroundings, he starts to sink, and Jesus pulls him into the boat. When we get to Mark, do you remember Mark is writing the gospel, but whose memoirs is he writing? Peter's. So why do you think that in this story of Jesus walking on the water when G Peter played a part, that Peter does not put this in his memoirs? Talk amongst yourselves in your small groups this week. That's a really good question. My opinion is that Peter reached a point in his life where John the Baptist's words became the way he lived. He must increase. I must decrease. So I'm not going to muddy this story up at all because all we need to see is that Jesus walked on the water taking the name of God and standing in the place of God. It's all about him. Now, that's the series of 
five stories, Jesus in each one putting his disciples in unexpected places in order to grow deeper allegiance. Let's take a deep dive into the feeding of the 5,000 to see exactly how this works. First, I'll tell the story, and then we'll get to the point. The story, the, the disciples return from their preaching tour. They have stories to tell. Jesus wants to debrief their mission, and they are in dire need of some rest. So they finally do get across the lake, and they're in this remote region near the fishing village of Bethsaida, it's known for its green grass and rolling hills. The problem is that Jesus has already impacted tens of thousands of lives in his ministry, and the idea of getting away from everyone is impossible. The paparazzi finds him. There's no rest. They just keep coming. And Jesus, being Jesus, welcomes the crowd and begins to teach. Mark says he had compassion on them, and so he taught them compassion and ministry is always connected to the idea of shepherding shepherding is always connected to the idea of leadership leadership's always connected to the idea of defining reality for people and that's what jesus is doing and he goes on and on like some of you are thinking now and on and on gets to be later in the day disciples to their credit are actually thinking about the masses and they go up to Jesus and they say, Master, we are in a very remote area. We are miles from anywhere. We need to dismiss the crowds now so they have time in the, in the light to find food and lodging. It's very good leadership from the disciples. Wouldn't you agree? Jesus turns to them and says, you feed them. You feed them. John tells us that evidently Philip was the accountant. He starts doing the math, contacts the National Park Service, estimates this crowd has 5,000 men in it, multiply by four. Scholars think this was a crowd of 20,000 people. Does some more math, figures out that the price to cater a crowd this size would be 200 denarii, which in modern currency and the dollar would be $10,000. Not to mention there was no fish fillet anywhere in sight. What gives? Jesus says, give me what you have. How many loaves do you have? Well, again, John tells us Andrew confiscated a little boy's lunch. Five loaves, two fish. Jesus takes it. He says, have the people sit down in small groups Exodus 18, we've seen this picture before. If you want to take care of a group and shepherd them, break them into small groups. So they're sitting there in the green grass. And Jesus takes the food, probably lifts it toward heaven, and prays the ancient Jewish meal prayer. And then, just starts giving it out and giving it out. The, the disciples are giving it out to people. This is a jointly uh, performed miracle. Disciples are part of this, and everyone eats until they are satisfied. That's the story. What does it mean? In a sentence, it means this. Jesus decides in this particular occasion to put his disciples in an unexpected situation in order to display his deity, in order to develop his disciples. 
display his deity. What do you think of when you hear someone feeding thousands of people in the wilderness? You think of God, the Lord. It must be doing this. It's the Lord. I mean, walk through the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 16, after God delivers them through the Red Sea, they're out in the middle of nowhere. How does he feed them? Well, he drops frosted flakes every morning down on the ground, and they eat twice on Friday, double portion. No, uh, Numbers 11, they cry out for meat, so God drops in the quail. First Kings 17, keeping his prophets alive. Elijah's hungry. God sends ravens with pieces of bread in their mouth to keep the prophet alive and the word of God still being preached. Second Kings chapter 4, Elijah decides to feed a large crowd of people from a few loaves of bread with baskets left over. That sounds familiar. In the Old Testament, God is always feeding people. It must mean that Jesus is the maker of heaven and earth. It must mean that Jesus is the one that we sing about in Psalm 145 when it says, the eyes of every person in the world looks to him for their hunger. You, I, do I need to remind you that King Supers doesn't make the food? God feeds people. He has Direct access to heaven, Jesus does, where he can manipulate the energy-matter equation. He's the master of molecules, and from five loaves and two fish can feed a crowd of 20,000 people because he is God. Mark's point is that Jesus is strong, and Jesus is smart. He would laugh at what we give Nobel Prizes for. He is the singularly most important person in the world on whom every person's destiny and existence depends. It's Him! It's Jesus. He's revealed as the Lord. And as He's revealed by the, as the Lord, that's also revealing reality. Defining life. Now I always try to push this here. I push it here. I push it in every funeral I preach. This is important. Part of my role as a pastor and a teacher is to always try and get you to define reality. Every person believes in a story that explains their existence. No matter what they believe, they believe it by faith. You and I have never lived one ounce of our life without faith. A story that gives meaning to life and explains things and helps us know why we're here, where we're going, and what happens when we die. That's always a story, and everyone believes in a story. What's your story? Many in our culture believe that we're here just dumped down between two ice ages. We are festered about by natural blind forces that have never had us in mind. They're the forces that ripen corn and rust metal. And when you die, you're dust. And when the sun burns out, it's over. No one will ever remember your name or anything you've done, so it doesn't ultimately matter if you've been a loving person or a cruel person. That's one story. That's one option. What about the option that's in front of us today? That this world was made by a God, the maker of heaven and earth, revealed to us in the person of Jesus, the one who can, with his power, fill empty stomachs, but even more, because he's the bread of life, he can fill and ravish our hearts with meaning and love. And that if you know him, then every time you encounter him again, 
It's like what C.S. Lewis says in the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan, the Christ figure, would pass by. Everyone would smell green grass and baking of bread in the morning. He's revealed as the Lord to reveal to us what reality is. And he's doing it to develop his disciples. How do we know that? The text is clear. Why do you think there were 12 baskets left over? John is even more blunt, puts the cards on the table. John says that Jesus knew what he wanted to do beforehand, but he decided to test Philip. So you see, he's putting them, him in an unexpected situation to prompt deeper allegiance. He's developing his disciples. How does Jesus develop disciples then and now? Well, he puts us into opportunities brilliantly described, disguised as impossible situations. And then he says, I'm going to test you to trust me. How does that work? Well, the hinge of this story is when Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? You see, he's always asking you and I that when he puts these situations in front of us. How much do you have? You see, he's not interested in how much you don't have. Because that's usually our default instinct, right? Jesus asks us to do something and we say, well, I, I don't have that kind of money. I don't have that kind of time. I, I, I don't have that kind of skill set. Jesus, I don't have... Take this home. This is the take home today. Jesus is not interested in what you don't have. He is very interested in what you might be willing to give. No matter how small. <laughs> Several years ago, a good friend and I, we often debate and do doctrine and, and argue on, on email. And he sends me an email. It was one of those Sundays, you've been here, if you've been around Waterstone, where we have like 18 things in church announcements, 18 things. And you get overwhelmed and you think, oh my gosh, who, who could ever do all this? And he was like a little angry. He said, if I were to come and do all those things you want us to do, I'd be here for 20 hours a week. And I typed back, you finally get this. <laughs> yes, we want you here 20 hours a week. Not really. We are not interested, and Jesus is not interested in what you can't give. And none of us can give 20 hours a week. But what can you give? What can you give? Could you do once a month where you have your neighbors over for dinner and then watch Jesus multiply that? Could you do that? Could you commit to two hours a week and join a small group here? Because as we pound this again and again and again, you don't come to church to get, you come to church to give, and you belong to a church when you found those 12 to 15 people, even if it's for 10 weeks, that you're going to help them grow and become more like Jesus. That's why you come to church, and that's what church means. Could you give two hours a week to do that? Or, let's say, you know, that's still pushing it. I am a busy person. Okay, could you give, he's not interested in what you can't give, only what you can. Could you give 30 minutes a week to join the best and coolest team at Waterstone, which is called Emily's team, Emily Kloss, our uh, assimilation pastor, connections pastor? You know what she does every week? She has people 
who on the phone call up people who have visited here. Every week we have like 10 to 15 visiting families that attend Waterstone, and we want them to feel welcome. We want them to become part of us, and so people call them. And you know the other thing she does? She has people call people we haven't seen around here in a few weeks. If I could just step out of that real quick. If you start skipping church on us, we will find you. If you do not want Emily calling you, I'm not. It, it's actually it's an amazing thing because usually you call up and people we find out most often are in crisis they haven't been around here because they can't get here there's too much going on in their life could you give 30 minutes a week and be on this phone team and help visitors feel welcome help hurting people help us find out about them okay that's the time thing how about the money thing all these things we're always trying to get you to do you think man you want me to give thousands of dollars to the poor and we say yes but for most of us that's not realistic so what can you give could you skip a meal this month and support a compassion kid because even at chick-fil-a that's about the price that's my favorite restaurant by the way classy you skip a meal at Chick-fil-A for even a couple, you can support a compassion child for a month. How about when we have communion? We're always handing out these bags for our food pantry. Do you understand that we're feeding 40 to 50 families a week from our food pantry and that food needs multiplied? So could you take a bag to King Supers and fill it up and bring it back? Could you do that? Jesus will multiply that. Okay, money, time, money. How about skill set? Often these things, like even Stephen ministry, you think, I could never do that. I'm not trained to do that. I would remind you that Jesus, he's stellar. We just need to show up. And if we show up, he'll multiply that in us. Doesn't matter what you know or don't know. So I'm asking you, if you're a compassionate person, or even if you're not, you're a committed person, would you be willing to come as a Stephen minister and walk through life with another person who's been diagnosed with cancer, who's going through a divorce, who's just lost a spouse or a child, the worst days of their life, you could be a rock that changes the course of their river. We need Stephen ministers. Would you be willing to step into something that you feel totally inadequate for, but let Jesus multiply that? You say, I, I, I don't think I get 50 hours of training. I, okay, how about this? <laughs> how about once a month, could you volunteer in our Waterstone kids, sit on the floor with babies and let them barf on you? Could you do that? The only skill required is laundry. Could you show up here on a Sunday night? We have this amazing ministry called Awana where our children are memorizing hundreds of Bible verses and they just need adults to sit and listen to them and tell them what a great job they're doing. I'm telling you it's a win-win because not only do you shape a child's life, but you learn the memory verses too. All right. Jesus is not interested in what you don't have. He is interested in what you can give. What can you give? I'm asking you, if you are plugged in are you plugged in to, to the kingdom of god to serving to giving what you can and watch jesus multiply are you plugged? Uh, uh, dallas willard the late dallas willard was a longtime professor of philosophy at usc and he writes about the time in his childhood in the 30s and 40s when he was growing up in missouri and all the farms were getting electricity he talks about how these agents from the uh, REA, the Rural Electric Association, would show up at the farmer's door and they'd be knocking and they'd say, hey, we'd like to, and you know, we're, I'm paraphrasing here, but we'd like to invite you into the kingdom of electricity. And it'll change your life. 
It's a whole new way of living. The way you manage food, prepare, and preserve, it's all different. The way you have light in your house, it's all different. The way that you have hot and cold water and bathe and wash your clothes, it's all different. It is a whole new way of life. And Dallas Willis says, the farmers were skeptical. They were thinking, you, wait, you mean this invisible power that I can't even see that's in our walls? You mean like, if I let that into my house, I'll have a whole new life? And the RA just said, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> they wouldn't believe him. So Dallas Willis says, finally, these poor REA agents were turning into preachers. And they were saying things like, repent. <laughs> Electricity is at hand. Turn away from your kerosene. Turn away from your washboards. Turn away from your icebox. And enter the kingdom of voltage. Are you plugged in? Are you leaving behind an ordinary life for a life that's plugged into the kingdom of God and every day live in the presence of eternal mind and values and even realizing that on the worst day of your life, that is when you die, it's an upgrade. Every day your life invaded by eternity it's the people who understand most deeply that they are now part of God's eternal kingdom are the people who are most fearless in this time are you plugged in to the kingdom of God the way to get plugged in Paul tells us if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That is, you now live in light of eternity and resurrection. And the resurrection, every day you practice resurrection. Believe Jesus is Lord. Confess in your heart, God raised him from the dead. You will be saved, plugged in. In order to respond to Jesus, who every day of our lives wants to bring us into unexpected situations in order to prompt deeper allegiance, in order to respond to him now, I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to sing a prayer uh, of allegiance, an old hymn called I Surrender All. Let us confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, and respond by giving the entirety of our lives to him. I surrender all.